Welcome to Michael Stone's podcast, Awaken the World. This podcast is part of an online community library we're developing, one that contains podcasts, videos, transcripts and booklets based on Michael's talks. The goal of this library and this podcast is to bring mindfulness and mental health into the spotlight. Through this work, we're creating new ways to wake up through socially engaged, conscious, spiritual practice. We're creating a culture of compassion and collaboration. We've left our physical monasteries and we're bringing them online. Before we get to today's podcast, I want to take a moment to ask you to consider becoming a patron of this podcast through Patreon. Pledging is easy and can be as little as $1 per month. Just go to patreon.com forward slash Michaelstone and click on the big orange button on the top right of the page. Thank you for listening. some of you when you were walking outside you could intuit the ancient source under the snow rivers that you are there hasn't been a student who hasn't cried on their cushion at least once that's also the ancient source That's also the river. There hasn't been somebody deeply involved in Orioki that hasn't burst out laughing at some point. Maybe this retreat's not long enough for that to happen, but you don't know, especially with Carmen around. The day that I drove up here, uh, I learned that one of my favorite painters, Helen Frankenthaler, died. Some of you might know her work. Uh, Her her husband was Robert Motherwell, but I liked her painting so much more. She, She was a good friend of Jackson Pollock, and she didn't like his painting because she thought that the way he painted on top of a canvas made the illusion that the canvas was deep. And she didn't like that. She wanted things to just be what they were. So she took paint and she thinned it out in coffee cans, which apparently she also taught to Mark Rothko. And then she poured the paint from the coffee cans onto her canvases in really interesting ways. And um, her big breakthrough came driving from New York City to Halifax, um, where she, she really studied light on hills. And in 2007, in an interview about this new way of painting with the New York Times, she, she said, After that trip, when I painted, the landscape was in my arms. It's 
really stood out for me. When I paint, the landscape is in my arms. I have a vision of her sort of hugging the land, you know, and the land hugging her back. But actually, probably what she meant is, is, is the sense that the landscape and her body were exactly the same thing. There's so much to learn from outside these windows to walk and really feel how this land is the ancient source. Your body is the ancient source. What do you think your sitz bones are plugged into? What are you breathing? It's bubbling. Ancient source. So, Dogen said, when you sit, you don't sit to get enlightened. You sit because you are enlightened. When you sit, you don't sit to realize an ancient source. You sit because you're the ancient source. So when you sit, you make of yourself an offering. You sit just like the Buddha is sitting on the altar at the front of the room, offering himself. You sit like the candle sits at the front of the room, burning herself. Or like the sun, pouring itself out for us. So your sitting is not something important. It's not holy. It's not valuable. It's not purposeful. It's just an offering. Can you feel that in your body? Just to sit. Let the earth take you. And just to make your body an offering. To allow freshness. Not to force or produce or manufacture or create, but just to allow for freshness. Each moment to allow for freshness. This inhale is new. You've never inhaled in this way before. So that everything's fresh. The orioki is fresh. <coughs> Quinoa is fresh, the inhale is fresh, that old thought that haunts you, it's coming up now, it's fresh, fresh haunting, fresh ghost, really fresh ghost, just <coughs> Otherwise, the meditation can be a problem. Even Buddhism can be a problem. Even really good Buddhist practice, good Buddhist philosophy. <coughs> if we identify with it, or we need to advance in it, then it becomes a problem. It's not fresh. Every good technique becomes a bad technique. 
So true refreshment goes beyond Buddhism. It goes beyond what we want, what we believe, what we think is right. True refreshment comes from offering yourself to each moment. Spontaneity. This is what we're learning to do on the cushion. To have beautiful conduct so that things are fresh. And in the end, freshness really doesn't have so much to do with you. It's what's so much bigger than you. Forgiveness works this way too, you know. In the Bible, Forgiveness comes from God. God forgives you. And in Buddhist practice, there's no you to forgive. Because you don't really exist the way you think you exist. It's kind of a joke. But I think where this Christian idea of forgiveness and this Buddhist practice are completely in line is that forgiveness has to come from something bigger than you. It can't come from the narrow ego. Otherwise, it's not really forgiveness. It's probably more reconciliation than forgiveness. Just trying to make peace with yourself because you're so annoying. Forgiveness can only come from that deeper source, that ancient stream, that place we touch in this practice. And if you can get into that space, you stand on the deepest ground, in the deepest river. We call it Buddha nature, but it's just being a person. We access it through meditation practice. We access it by being natural. So that forgiveness is in your arms, like the landscape is in your arms. Under bitterness, resentment and anger, is the breath, the release of the palate, the lifting of the front edges of your armpits, 
widening of the collarbones. Real forgiveness happens from outside of reference points. One of Norman Fisher's students who really suffered from becoming an adult and realizing he couldn't keep relationships. One ended after another, after another, after another. He didn't understand why. And every relationship ended badly. So he went to see Norman and said, I don't know what to do. Everything's ending badly. So Norman said, set up an altar at home with a Buddha on it. And every do, day, do 108 full bows. And every time you start the bow, say, I forgive you. And this man said to Norman, Who am I forgiving? And Norman said, You'll see. So this is what he did for a few years, every day. One bow after another bow after another bow every morning, saying, I forgive you, I forgive you. And you can probably for, f feel this practice, you know, just imagining it. Maybe some of us need to do this practice, you know. Apparently this man's married now. <laughs> A lot of kindness in this relationship. Don't be scared off of that. So some of you might not do it now. Can't take another marriage. Maybe we don't love ourselves because we know ourselves too well. So forgiveness is not about knowing yourself. It's about offering yourself so that you're healed by what's bigger than you. The ancient stream, Buddha nature, Brahman, snow. In classical Buddhism and also in yoga, there's not so much uh, teaching about forgiveness, really. The only teaching that I know of, really, or directly about forgiveness, um, is the chant that we do in the morning, the atonement chant. And I think this is because the average Asian practitioner didn't grow up with the Bible. 
Not that there's anything wrong with the Bible, but St. Augustine's version of the Bible, where so many of us, we've just been punishing ourselves. Whether we know it or not. And then you sit still on the retreat, and then you start to see this this kind of comparing mind that's so insidious. When I was in Los Angeles uh, uh, many years ago now, uh, listening to the Dalai Lama, uh, somebody who I was there with was telling me this story that this woman during the week with His Holiness, whenever she was doing the meditations in the morning, she kept noticing that all she really wanted was to some self-approval, some approval from others especially. She looked in people's eyes just to get their approval. And it was the first time she'd seen this. So she went to see the, the Dalai Lama and have a conversation with him. And she said, during the, the retreat, all I notice is I want people to, to give me approval. I want to be seen. That's really courageous, you know, to actually admit that. I just want to be seen. And the Dalai Lama said, how old are you? And she said, over 40. And he said, once you're 40, the world approves. (laughs) And now it's your job to approve others. I was driving home from Detroit because I quit my job. And I was actually in Indiana and I quit. And then I decided to stop in Detroit where my apartment was and get my stuff. But when I was driving through Detroit, I just couldn't bear to go to my apartment. So so I just drove right past it. I left everything there. I just didn't want the life that I was in. And while I was driving on the 401, when I got just past Windsor, Windsor, I started crying. And I I punched the steering wheel in my car. And then I had this realization that... Well, no, I didn't have a realization yet. I, I was crying and I was really angry at my father. I hadn't thought about my father in months. And I had this realization that the life that I was living was for my dad. I had a job he'd really like. I was 20 and I was making a lot of money. I decided while I was driving from Windsor to Toronto, which is four hours, it was the 1st of March, 
And I decided that I would uh, go to Toronto and buy a camper van and go move to the forest and not talk to anyone for a year. I needed to find the source. So that's what I did. I, I bought a van and I moved to Algonquin Park. I didn't think about how cold Algonquin Park was in March. It's not that different than this, actually. Uh, so I slept during the day and I stayed up in the night, so that I wouldn't get, so I wouldn't freeze. And I met a tow truck driver who gave me money. I mean, who gave me food. So I never had to leave. I think for the first three months I never left uh, the, the van. And I started learning how to sit. And I painted and I read a lot. And mostly I listened to the sound of the ice cracking, which sounds exactly the same as thunder. And I, I didn't talk to my dad for uh, two years. And uh, this was really devastating for him. But actually it was really, really important for me. I hope my son doesn't do this. I've told him no camper vans. <laughs> After two years, I... I I went to Vancouver to go visit him because that's where he was living. <coughs> he had a, a glass condominium uh, right near Granville Island. And, and glass mm -hmm. and Vancouver basically just means cold. Really cold, I remember his apartment. And I went to see him and, and we, we sat down together and we talked for hours. And um, I told him about what I was doing and what I was feeling, and he got really angry with me. I got angry with him. Then he stopped being angry with me, and it just went back and forth for hours. And then finally, we both stood up at the same time and we hugged. And my dad is really strong. And he hugged me in this way. He's hugged me since I was small. Really, really strong. But while he was hugging me tightly, I couldn't feel the hug. I couldn't feel him hugging me. And then I had this realization that um, he, this is all he could do. That the kind of hug that I needed from him, I couldn't, I couldn't get it couldn't get it from him. And then I felt so much love for him. And actually my, my love for my dad, for those of you who have met him, is I love my dad. He's the most difficult person I know. But it was this time we were hugging and I had this feeling that he couldn't meet what I needed. And that it was okay, because his life was also restricted. At the time, I never thought about it as forgiveness. But the way I thought about it is that sometimes our parents 
have had more suffering in their lives than they've had love. And it's a major human contribution to be a parent, to be a sibling, to be a friend, and have more love than suffering. Sometimes I think coming on retreat is actually a moral obligation to our culture. To have more love than suffering. To be closer to the bubbling source than to anger. To be the kind of parent that Annie is. To be the kind of parent that Ruby is. The kind of son that Grant is. More love than suffering. And for those of you who grew up with really peaceful childhood, it doesn't matter because even if your parents didn't give you a hard time, the world will. And if the world doesn't give you a hard time, high school will. <laughs> and the only thing worse than high school is middle age. Because when you're middle age, you're stuck in relationships and it's so complicated and your spouse never does what you want them to. Or you're not in a relationship and that looks good. And the only thing worse than middle age is being old because everything hurts. And you start losing quickly all the people who are really close to you. Maybe even your kids die. <clears throat> Knowing how to be satisfied. Knowing how to forgive yourself how to forgive others. Knowing how to stop comparing your life to some perfect ideal. And usually some ideal you've never really examined. How much money I need. <coughs> what my kitchen needs to look like in the future. Where my career is going. 
Here's a little poem from Han Shan. You can picture Han Shan in northern China in his mountain hut. Cold mountain, he called it. In the house east of here lives an old woman. Three or four years ago, she got rich. In the old days, she was poorer than me. Now she laughs at me for not having a penny. She laughs at me for falling behind. And I laugh at her for getting ahead. No stopping our laughter. (laughs) East and West. Can you imagine to be as free as Hanshan? To laugh at your good fortune and also to laugh at your misfortune. You have done so many stupid things, haven't you? God, I've done so many stupid things. And also I've had some really good fortune. The comparing mind is the most insidious and the most dangerous. And it's what stops freshness. Comparing yourself to ideals and comparing yourself to others. It stops everything. Knowing how to be satisfied in every aspect of your life. Who's ahead? Who's behind? I didn't get the karma job I wanted. Good. Laughing at your fortune. Just to be the stream, to be fluid, to be the stream right now. Who knows where you'll be next year? Who knows what you'll be next year? Who knows what the next sit will be like? Li Po writes, The birds have vanished in the sky, and now the last cloud (coughs) drains away. We sit together, the mountain and me, until only the mountain remains. We sit together, the snow and me, until only the snow remains. We sit together, the breath, and who I think I am, until only the breath remains.
When I was 19, the job that I had was working for Paul Newman. He owned a racing car team, and his, his driver was Mario Andretti, who was retiring. And through a roundabout way, I got a job writing all their press releases and traveling with them for a couple of years. And um, I really, really loved Paul. He, he was a gentleman from another era, a kind of man that we don't really have anymore. He had a spiritual practice. He lived on the Connecticut River. Every morning he jumped in. Didn't matter what time of the year it was. It would be like this outside. He'd jump in. Even in the 70s. So when I had this job, I got paid really well. And um, everybody around me said, This is the best thing, you know. Your career is set. And so I was moving in circles where my whole life was set, you know. You meet all the right people. And every night I'd go to my hotel room because we traveled and I would be so depressed. And so I would just read about the Dharma. I think I read Zen Mind, Beginner's Mind a hundred times in two years. And I would sit and practice yoga. And finally, the split was too big between what I felt in my heart and this ideal job. So I went to see him and, and I said, uh, <coughs> I, can't, I can't work with you anymore. And he said, you look terrible. <coughs> <coughs> and I didn't even realize I had stopped shaving. He said, what do you want to do? I said, I don't know. But after our conversation, I'm going to walk out of here. And, and I'm never going to come back. And he said, you know Sandy, who works in the office? She was the secretary. I said, yeah. She really wanted to be an anthropologist. And then he started naming all the people around him and talked about what they really wanted to be. And he said, so you have to leave. And so he gave me some money, and he told me to go. And I, I think I didn't realize, but that's really what I wanted my dad to do. It's okay just to go do what you love. So then I spent the next year, 10 years completely broke. <laughs> Actually, it hasn't improved so much. <laughs> but it meant a lot to me to have 
this knowledge of Paul Newman in those years because he, he was really doing what he loved. That's how he lived. It's so nice when we're in Sangha, when we're in community, to see how each other practice. And then as you get to know each other over the years, to see how it affects people's lives. And that's what gives you faith in the practice. Because you see it working. You're a different person when you're doing what turns you on. And you find it first just by settling and stopping. Not running away anymore. Shum. just to stop and come. We should spend a lot of time forgiving our parents. We should spend a lot of time forgiving our friends. We should spend a lot of time forgiving ourselves. So that our arms can be the landscape. Good karma is bad karma, and bad karma is good karma. All the karma you think is bad karma is really, really good.
Patabi Joyce once said to me, if you get reborn into a heaven realm, it'll be really bad for your practice. Because there's not enough suffering. You need decent obstacles. <coughs> the psychologist Adam Phillips says, an obstacle shows you where you are. Shinru Suzuki says, it's really hard to practice if you don't have problems. You need some problems to practice. If you don't have any, come see me. And I'll give you some more details for the Oriyoki practice. <laughs> the world that we're going to go back to in a few days is more complicated than any Oriyoki meal. And if we're going to care for the world, like we're taking care of ourselves, then we need freshness. And we find freshness through this offering, just to sit, just to sit these few days and let your body be an offering, a dharma gate, a Buddha, a bodhisattva. can't think of anything else worth doing. For this time we have together. told you about yesterday forgave someone's debt to him. He really turned that person's life around. And all he could say was, you could just see it in their face. Maybe it's too late to turn around some relationships in your life that have ended poorly. Maybe you've, you've, you left a few wrecks, you know. Or maybe you've been left as a wreck. 
That's more likely, right? You didn't hurt anybody, you know, but... <laughs> Just now to forgive. Don't keep carrying it around. And now we learn a practice where we can have better conduct, even though we'll never always be right. But you won't suffer so much. Because when bad things happen, you have some skills to work with that turbulence. I hope when Helen Frankenthaler died that she really felt when she was dying that the landscape were her arms. When you die, the only thing that matters is your heart. What you've built the money you've made, the empire you've built, the art you've made, it's not important. It'll only be important if you can forgive. It'll only be important if you can forgive. If you can die with a generous heart giving it away. And that's the meaning of the term gate gate para gate parasam gate bodhiswaha. Swaha. You die on an exhale. Bodhiswaha. means gone, gone, beyond, beyond, gone, beyond, beyond. Gate, gate, paragate, parasangate, bodhiswaha. Swaha.